This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Dennis C. Rasmussen about his new and valuable book, Fears of a Setting Sun, The Disillusionment of America's Founders. Your theme, Dennis, is pessimism, but the lesson you draw from it is hopeful and optimistic. No small feat, and one for which I expect your readers to be grateful. Everywhere in the news media these days, left, right, digital, and analog, we hear that America is in decline, past its sell-by date, lost in the desert of corruption, swept away in the seas of ambition and avarice. And yet here you are to say that we've seen much worse, that the times have never been easy, and that from our failures, we gather strength. Perhaps you can begin with your choice of the title, Fear of a Setting Sun. Absolutely, and, and thank you for the kind introduction. So the, the title comes from a little vignette that we have from the final day of the Constitutional Convention. So this is September 17th, 1787. Um, after the, the debates are over, the delegates are finally lining up to put their names to the document. And the story goes, we have this from James Madison notes that Benjamin Franklin um, calls attention to a chair that George Washington had, uh, who was presiding over the convention, that Washington had occupied at the head of the room all summer. And it's this mahogany chair. It has a decorative half sunburst carved into the crests. Um, it's now called the Rising Sun Chair, and you can still see it on display at, at Independence Hall. Um, and so Franklin calls attention to the, the half sunburst on, on this chair, and he says, I've often over the course of the summer looked at that sun on the chair, um, wondering whether it was a rising or a setting sun, but now at length I have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun. Um, and so this is a famous... Um, depiction of the founders optimism at the new government's birth but then the argument of the the book is that almost none of the founders carried that optimism to their graves that franklin himself only lived to see this government in action for a single year but that most of the founders who lived into the 19th century um, or even to the dawn of the new century like washington came to feel deep anxiety and disappointment and even despair about the, the government and the nation they'd helped to create. So that's the setting sun that I'm seeing they're fearing. Your book focuses on four prominent figures, Washington, Hamilton, Adams, and Jefferson, all four of them losing their faith in the American experiment. And why don't you tell each story? They're, you say they're unique. So give us a brief explication of Washington's dissolution and Hamilton's and Adams and so forth. Okay, sure. So we'll start. Well, I guess I'll, I'll um, just lay out the, the basics at the outset. So Washington's disillusionment came all, above all because of the rise of parties and partisanship. Um, Hamilton's because he felt that the federal government was just too weak, just not energetic enough. Um, energy was the term he used all the time. John Adams, um, disillusionment came because he thought that the people lacked the, the civic virtue that was needed to sustain a Republican government. 
And then Jefferson's came from a number of reasons, but the, the key one really was sectional divisions that were uh, between North and South that were laid bare by conflict over the spread of slavery. Um, so we can take Washington first. Um, as I said, Washington's disillusionment came from the rise of parties and partisanship. This was something that he feared above all else, that this is something that was common for the founding generation to fear. This is a, a sort of stock theme of 18th century political discourses, is their aversion to factions, as they were frequently called. But Washington really loathed parties more fiercely and consistently, and I think sincerely than anyone else did. He saw on the individual level, he saw partisans as partial, meaning that they favor the interests of some parochial group over the common good. And so they're, they're not true patriots. They're not exhibiting the kind of disinterested virtue that, that Washington prized. And then on a more societal level, he worried that parties sow conflict. They, they um, divide the community. They, um, by opposing the government's administration. They, they make it less well administered. They open the door to foreign influence and corruption. Um, and so Washington was really, from the very beginning of his career, worried about what he called the demon of party spirit. I use that as one of my, my chapter titles. Um, and when, it, when he's made, I mean, the parties don't appear in the Constitution, and, and they're not there in the first few years of Washington's presidency. Correct. They, they, I mean, it sounds impossibly naive, right, from today's vantage point, that the Constitution makes no mention of political parties. And when you read the debates from the Constitutional Convention, most of the delegates just assume that parties are never going to emerge. The first implicit recognition of parties in the Constitution doesn't come until the 12th Amendment in 1804. So the, there are, they're, they're expecting to be, the, the founders are expecting that there will be no parties. And there really weren't for the first year or two. For the first year or two, Washington was pretty um, sanguine that his various um, advisors were going to work together very well and that they were going to surmount the party spirit that he so fears. So, so for the first year or two of the, uh, after the Constitution is ratified, after Washington assumes the presidency, um, he's quite optimistic. It's in the early 1790s, really I think 1792 is when, when things start going downhill, that the parties emerge and they emerge within his own cabinet. Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson are two of the key players in the emerging party wars between the, the Federalists and the Republicans or Democratic Republicans. And from there, it spreads to the, the rest of the country. So it's a, a not quite like the parties we have today, where we have parties have all these formal mechanisms for choosing candidates and waging campaigns and raising money and the like, but it's very clear ideological differences that um, lead to quite a lot of rancor and exactly the type of conflict that Washington was always hoping to avoid. And Jefferson and Hamilton really don't like each other. I mean, you say that they, they're in the same cabinet Washington, I mean, Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, Jefferson, the Secretary of State, but they can barely bear to be in the same room together. That's right. And I think they would have lasted a lot less time in the cabinet together than they did without Washington there. Washington is really, for a long time, the one who's able to straddle the divide and, and keep the two sides and within the country together. Um, but no, they did. I mean, it was a very personal hatred between the two. And I think some of this comes out in the, the musical, the Broadway musical about Hamilton. But, you know, 
Jefferson looks down on Hamilton as a sort of presumptuous upstart trying to exalt himself above his proper station, right? He's a self-made immigrant. Um, whereas Jefferson is, of course, this rich, very well-connected slaveholder. But then Hamilton was and is often regarded as a champion of the economic elite, whereas Jefferson self-consciously casts himself as the apostle of, of humble farmers. And so, they, um, in some ways, their personalities don't fit their, their political outlooks, but in some ways that makes the, the conflict between them all the more um, vitriolic. And. What is the fundamental ideological difference between what comes to be known as Republican and Federalist? Sure. So they have very different policy prescriptions for, for what they want the new government to do. Hamilton really wants the new government to govern energetically. He wants, um, as a Treasury Secretary, he puts forward a very sweeping financial program, um, He, which Jefferson and the Republicans see as part of a, a vast conspiracy by money men to what he calls sock jobbers to corrupt the young nation. Hamilton wants is robust of an exercise of federal power, especially by the executive branch as he can get, whereas Jefferson wants much more limited scope for federal authority. He wants more power in the state governments and in Congress. There's a little bit of controversy over slavery in the background, at least. Um, the the Republicans, not, not all Republicans are from the South, but the Republicans certainly dominated the South. And they worried that Northern Federalists, if they got the powerful federal government that they wanted, would use that to meddle with slavery. But more than that, I think even deeper than that, they deemed each other all but illegitimate. The Federalists tended to see the Anti-Federalists, or I'm sorry, the Republicans as basically unreconstructed Anti-Federalists, that is to say opponents of the Constitution, opponents of the government under which they were living, whereas the Republicans tended to see Federalists as all but monarchists um, who, who wanted to all but return to the, the kind of British system that, that had prevailed before uh, before the war. And so they, they, this fact that neither side can recognize the legitimacy of the other makes the kind of reasonable compromise that Washington hoped for and expected a, a pipe dream by the end of his, his second term. And also during, the sec during his two terms, you have the appearance of uh, the partisan press. Talk about, I mean, I mean the, we think of our own press as being very partisan and mean-spirited, but tame in comparison to what shows up in America in the 1790s. Yes, that's right. The partisan press, and all the press was partisan. There, aren't, there isn't really neutral press in the 1790s. Um, the partisan press is really, it makes today's fake news, quote unquote, fake news look tame by comparison. Um, so the, it really starts with Jefferson and Madison inviting a guy named Philip Freneau, who was a, a college classmate of, of Madison's, to start a new newspaper that would um, basically attack Hamilton, attack, uh, you know, this is a fellow cabinet member of Jefferson's. And he does. He launches a, a, a newspaper called the National Gazette, and he's just unrelenting in his attack on Hamilton um, and, and fawning in his admiration of Jefferson. Um, just an act of gross betrayal on the part of, of Madison, and especially Jefferson. Jefferson's in the cabinet, and he's started an, an ongoing funding of uh, a anti-administration newspaper. And it sort of escalate, keeps on escalating. So for Washington's first term, he's basically sacrosanct. No one would think of, of criticizing the great 
general, the great war hero. But by the end of the, his second term, especially once Hamilton's left office and he's no longer there as a target, the Republican press takes its eyes, uh, sets its sights squarely on Washington. And the stuff they make up about him is incredible. They, they say that he, you know, he's a womanizer, he's a blasphemer, he's, um, he, wants a, he wants to be the new King George. Alexander Hamilton is his illegitimate son. Um, that he wanted to betray the Patriot cause during the revolution. It's only that Benedict Arnold beat him to the punch. I mean, they were willing to make up anything. Um, so yes, so the, the media then was in far worse shape than it is now, as much as we worry about today's, uh, today's media. Yes, and the, but the Federalist press on the other side is just as fanciful as the Republican press, right? That's right, and especially by the end of the decade. So by the time you get to the election election of 1800, which is far more vitriolic than and today's elections, the the claim on on behalf of the uh, or made by the Federalist Press is that. Thomas Jefferson is an atheist. If he gets elected president, there will be no more morality. Your wives will be raped in the streets. I mean, it's just the, the over the top on both sides is, is incredible to read. Talk about Washington's farewell address. So the farewell address is, a, of course, a very famous document. It's often read as a sort of warning about the, these are the dangers that the country might one day face. I think it's better to read it as a lament about ills that he was sure had already beset the country. Um, he's writing this as he's stepping down from the presidency after two terms. He wished he could step down earlier, but this was as soon as he was able to, to get away. And he marks his exit. He could have easily, of course, marked his exit with a victory lap. A lot had been celebrated, had, had been accomplished over over the course of his two terms. Like what? Not least getting the new, well, the new government's up and running, right? It has a widespread sense of popular legitimacy that it wasn't clear that it would have up at the outset. A Bill of Rights has been added to the Constitution. Five new states have been added. The, the, what was initially the nation's just disastrous finances had been put in order. And they, you know, they had more or less solved the problems for at least for the time being on the Western frontier. Americans have gotten free navigation on the Mississippi River. There are all kinds of accomplishments, given the, the really just daunting challenges the country had faced when he took office. I, you know, it's arguable that no president's ever accomplished more than Washington accomplished in his two terms. And yet his mindset is so dark that he chooses to take his leave with a warning about the forces that he thinks might doom the republic and that are just manifest all around him. Of course, the greatest one is, is parties and, and partisanship. Now, the, maybe the most famous theme of the farewell address is the worry about um, foreign entanglements, um, foreign policy questions. But those two, they feed right into his worries about party. His worry is really that foreign, permanent foreign entanglements of the kind that Hamilton wanted with England and Jefferson wanted with France would exacerbate the partisanship at home and and feed into the conflict that he's he's worried about. All right, so Washington exits in a spirit of disillusion and, and no storybook ending. So what about Hamilton's disillusion? How does that play out? So Hamilton's worry, as I suggested at the outset, is slightly different. He's more worried about what he sees as a insufficiently vigorous or energetic 
federal government in relation to the state government. So he's of the major founders, he's easily the most consistent, uh, the most unabashed proponent of a strong national authority, which of course runs very counter to the whole um, intellectual culture that had fueled the revolution. The, the revolution is fueled by this idea that, well, we should exercise political power on a local level, not be governed by these far off elites in London or in New York, where the first capital is, or Washington eventually, right? Um, whereas Hamilton thinks that you need a powerful government um, to get anything done and frankly to protect rights. That he thinks that his opponents, Jefferson and the Republicans, are so worried about um, the dangers posed to individual rights by the government that they're not worried enough about the, um, the capability of the government to protect rights. And so he always thinks that there's more danger to liberty from a weak government than an, a strong one. Um, this comes out in a famous speech that he gave at the, the Constitutional Convention. Um, this was June 18th, I believe it is, 1787. He gives a remarkable speech. It lasts the full day um, that he makes everyone sit there and listen to him for the entire day. And he says quite explicitly that um, they sh the, the British government is the best government in the world, that they should try to approximate it or emulate it as closely as possible. Um, he advocates that the president, after ele being elected, should serve for life, that the senator should serve for life. He, he had envisions basically no role at all for the state governments. And of course, nothing like this is instituted. The, this is way too far for basically almost any of the other delegates to, to get on board with. And so the, the constitution that they formulate is far weaker than he wants. Um, it's an almost offhand line, but I use this as one of my chapter titles as well. He says that toward the end of the convention that no man's ideas were further from the plan, that is the constitution, than his were. So from the very outset, he's worried that the government isn't going to be strong enough. And so he does everything he can to build it up. When he's in power as the uh, Treasury Secretary, he tries to build up the power of the federal government, the power of the executive branch, especially while Washington is, is in office and, and it's hard for people to object too much. He continues even after leaving the, the Treasury Department. He comes out of retirement uh, or quasi-retirement um, in the late 1790s, 1798 and 99, during what was known as the quasi-war with France, where he takes effective control of the, a new army that's being built up to meet what they think is a threat posed by France. He does anything and everything he can think of to build up the government, but he's just never satisfied that he's done enough. Um, Jefferson and Madison are always there kind of hounding him, keeping him from realizing the full full extent of his vision. And then, of course, by 1800, his arch enemy, Jefferson, is elected president with a mandate to pare down the government's powers still further. And so by that point, he's really depressed. The letters from his last, of course, he dies very prematurely. He dies in 1804 from the duel with Aaron Burr, as, as most listeners will know, um, when he's still only in his 40s. But even by then, he, he feels like a outmoded has-been. He, he's only in his 40s, but he, he feels like the world has passed him by. And in a letter to Governor Morris in 1802, he says he's still laboring to prop the frail and worthless fabric of the uh, Constitution. And and he says that no man has done more to sacrifice his own interest to the greater good of the country than himself. 
That's right. I mean, that's a very, the frail and worthless fabric is a really uh, harsh way to describe the Constitution that, that had lasted that long and that, you know, we admire so much today. Yeah, so he says um, that this American, in that same letter, he says, this American world is not made for me, right? He's decided that um, this already weak government is becoming weaker still under the auspices of the Republicans. And so little but... Um, disillusion and weakness can be expected from from then on out. Let's now go to Adams, who also he lives longer than than Hamilton, but he also thinks that nobody other than himself has given so much and made done so much for the country and got so little credit for it. That's exactly right. And that's his worry is that other people aren't doing enough for the country. So his worry, and you're right, he does live much longer. Washington dies in 1799. Hamilton dies in 1804, whereas Adams lives all the way till 1826. So he sees his erstwhile political opponents. He sees the Republicans gain ascendancy over the political scene for basically the last two and a half decades of his life um, until the very end where his son, John Quincy Adams, uh, assumes the presidency. Um, So he's, it's in some ways really not surprising that Adams becomes disillusioned given that he sees, um, again, his opponents take power for so long. But his his pessimism actually started earlier than others, too. So the, really, the overriding source of his pessimism was what he took to be the lack of virtue among the American people, the lack of civic virtue, of patriotism, sense of duty, willingness to put the public good ahead of one's private interest. And he thought with that, that without that, Republican government just really couldn't last. And so this is a constant theme throughout his his career. And as you suggest, he really what he wants is for people to be more like himself. He he's spent most of his life serving his country. He, he sometimes lamented that he had to leave his, his farm, his family in Massachusetts, and he spends all this time at the Continental Congress, then a time in various foreign countries serving as a diplomat, and then, of course, in the Capitol as vice president and, and, and then president. And so he thinks that he's done more for his country. He sacrificed more for his country than anyone else has. And he wishes his fellow citizens would do the same, that they would be willing to sacrifice. Um, Early on, he's a little bit hopeful that they will. In the 1770s, you occasionally get moments of optimism where he thinks, well, once we've uh, achieved independence, um, once we are ruling ourselves, people will, they'll know that they're the sovereign, the ultimate sovereign, and so they'll put the country first. Um, How can people not want what's good for the public, which is to say themselves? But then the the kind of other side of the, the Adams pessimistic side comes through even in the 1770s. There are all kinds of lines that I quote in the book where he says, you know, we just don't have the virtue to sustain a republic. And by the 1780s, he's all but certain that he's right, that the pessimistic side of him rather is right. That that, that also um, comes from his reading of history. I mean, one of the imagine, amazing things about all of the founders is their, how much they write and how deeply they think and and uh, how much they read but of all of them the one that reads the most is is adams and his his uh his pessimistic view of the human race is is based on his reading of history 
That's exactly right. So Jefferson was better read, you know, he was more omnivorously read, I suppose we might say, than Adams. But in terms of, of reading about politics and history and law, no one can surpass Adams. Not even Madison reads as much. If you read his, his what he took to be his greatest work called The Defense of the Constitutions of the Government of the United States. This is written in 1786 and 1787 in defense of the state constitutions or some of the state constitutions. It's incredible reading that work, the, the parade of um, historical episodes and facts and philosophers that go by. He seems to know everything. And that's really, as you suggest, that's the lesson that he takes from all this study is that Republican government depends not just on having the right institutions, setting up the right you know, separation of powers and checks and balances and the like. It depends on people's character, that if the country's going to remain free, people need to have this sense of duty, this sense of civic virtue. And, and this, of course, is where he differs with Jefferson. I mean, we'll get to Jefferson next, but both Jefferson and Adams die on the same day in 1826 on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. But Jefferson has a long-held view of the exceptionalism of the Americans, that they are better than other people. And, and uh, Adams never buys into that. He, he thinks that there is no special providence for Americans, and their nature is the same with that of others. Right. He's pretty brutal about puncturing these, what he sees as myths of American exceptionalism. So yes, as you suggest, Jefferson is convinced that the American people are this uniquely virtuous citizenry. He's even more convinced of this once he spends time in France, whereas Adam's time abroad allows him to see that Americans are pretty much the same as everywhere else. Um, but he, he really picks Americans to themselves in a, a pretty harsh light, which of course doesn't win him uh, many fans, many admirers, which he, he half lamented, half bragged about that, that, he, that he was uh, disinterested enough. He was able to overlook popularity enough to, to speak the truth to the people. But no, he, he's, he never thinks, um, or at least not in, after the 1770s, he doesn't think at all that Americans are going to be fundamentally different. He thinks they're just as addicted to luxury, just as selfish as all of the peoples had been. And so there's no reason to suggest that, that a Republican government is going to work here when it hadn't worked elsewhere. All right, now we come to Jefferson. Disillusion sets in with him very late in his life, you say, with the Missouri crisis of 1819. But he doesn't give up on his, Jefferson doesn't give up on his belief in American exceptionalism. So what is the source of his disillusion? Right. So Adam's disillusionment comes the earliest, as I say, by the 1780s, if not 1770s. Jefferson comes by far the latest. He's relentlessly optimistic about the American people through, I'm going to say, 1816 or so. Um, this is even after, you know, during the 1790s, he doesn't always like what happens under the Federalists. He's really quite alarmed um, by, uh, well, first by Hamilton's financial program, and then later in the decade by the Alien and Sedition Acts passed under 
by the Federalists under the presidency of John Adams. So he has these moments, but he's always sure that the American people are going to come through at the end, that um, they're all true Republicans and, in fact, Jeffersonian Republicans at heart. And so Republicanism, he was sure, was going to win out. And then it did. It seemed to. In 1800, he came to power. Republicans came to power in Congress. And he writes all kinds of frankly, self-congratulatory note saying, you know, we've weathered the storm, we've come to port, the American experiment made it after all. And then he's president for two terms, his best friend, James Madison, is president for the next two terms, and then his protege, James Monroe, is president for the next two terms after that, right? So he has 24 years with the Republicans in power, and, and for so for most of his life, he thinks you know, the future is bright. A number, starting in around 1816, a number of things come to trouble him. The biggest one is for sure the Missouri crisis. So the, the, this is, uh, the Missouri crisis comes when um, the state of Missouri is applying for statehood. At this point, there's an even number of slave states and free states. And so there's this enormous question, is Missouri going to come in as a free state or a slave state? That's going to upset the balance either way. Um, and this shakes the whole nation. And uh, Jefferson says in a very famous letter to a guy named John Holmes, he says very famously that this question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened me and filled me with terror. I considered it at once the knell of the union, the death knell of the union. He basically predicts the path to the Civil War. He says that once you have a geographical line with this moral um, divide between the country, between North and South, it's never going to go away. Everything's going to just make it deeper and deeper until until the, the two sides can't hang together anymore. And he concludes this letter which, with what I think is just the most unforgettable expression of regret. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll paraphrase. He says something like, I'm now going to die believing that everything we fought for in 1776 was in vain, that it's going to be thrown away by the present generation. My only um, consolation is that I'm not going to live myself, live long enough to weep over this this act, this, this destruction of this, this republic. And so it's really an amazing thing, this really forceful articulation of, of disillusionment coming from the guy who had been the most perennially optimistic of, of the founders. How does this bear, or, or do you take account of Jefferson's own attitude towards slavery? In other words, he, he takes stands against slavery in his younger life, but then again, he's also a slaveholder. How does he resolve that? How does he fit that into his notions of American exceptionalism? Right. So this is obviously a question historians have, have debated and uh, wondered about for, for since, you know, since Jefferson's own lifetime. So, yeah, so early in his career, he fights a, a frankly reasonably forceful, uh, he makes a reasonably forceful case against slavery in the political sphere, whatever he does back home in, in Monticello, right there, there, we can talk about why you know, whether he's just a, simply a hypocrite or, or whatever. But in the political sphere, he really does some important things. He tries to put a really harsh denunciation of slavery into the Declaration of Independence, into the nation's founding document, as the culminating final grievance against King George III is that he vetoed colonial attempts to limit or tax the slave trade. 
he comes up with a couple of different gradual emancipation schemes for his own home state of Virginia. And maybe most remarkably, he proposes a measure to the Continental Congress that would have forbid the, the slavery going into any of the Western territories, both north and south of the Ohio River, which came within one vote of passing and would have been amazing if it did. This would have essentially nipped in the bud the, the key cause of, of conflict that led to the Civil War, the question of the expansion of slavery into the territories. But then he just becomes, frankly, worse and worse about slavery as time goes on. In the 1790s, the issue kind of goes on the back burner. He's focused more on the fight against Hamilton and the Federalists, and he doesn't want to alienate you know, fellow Southerners, for, you know, push them away from the Republican cause. As president, he does very little. Um, he does sign a ban on the overseas slave trade, but this was you know, something that almost everyone supported by that point. And then in retirement, by the time we get to the Missouri crisis, he really does the worst thing of all. He um, embraces a essentially crackpot theory known as diffusion, the idea being that if you allow slavery to expand into new territory, that's not going to increase the number of the slaves, it's just going to make them more spread out. And so if enslaved people are spread out over more territory, he thinks that this, that somehow they'll be treated better if if they're more spread out, but also that if there are more slaveholders in more places, then you know, it's going to be easier. Emancipation is going to be easier because each individual slaveholder is going to have to give up less to do it. This is obviously a foolish idea, right? It, the, to suggest that you're going to solve the problem by making it much bigger, right? We're going to yeah. solve the yeah. problem of slavery by giving it full reign, making it more national <laughs> rather than sectional in scope. Um, it's, it's hard to square with the idea that Jefferson is a generally pretty smart guy <laughs> that he, he bought this, this line. But really what he does in these final years is he lends his very powerful name to the forces seeking to expand slavery. It's really um, pretty despicable what he does at the end. Even though he foresees the, the wreckage likely to come to the country as a result of the difference of opinion on slavery. Again, he seems to think that it's the Federalist's fault. He, th he seems to think that the Federalists can't see the truth of the, the benefits of diffusion and that really if everyone were to come to, to his side, then the problem would be easier to solve. So he, I think he very sincerely thinks that this is, he's not trying to do anything to perpetuate slavery. He, I think, very sincerely believes that this is the best way to end it. It's just, uh, I think, a testament to humanity's powers of of self-serving self -serving rationalization that he convinces himself of this. Um, so I say at one point, I'm afraid Jefferson doesn't come off terribly well in the book, but I say at one point that, you know, he still, by, by the 1820s, he still sees himself as an opponent of the institution, but given everything he's fought for, it would be fair to say that with enemies like Jefferson, slavery hardly needed friends, right? He, he does right, see yeah. himself as, as fighting it. He's just doing it in the exact wrong way. Well, come now to, to the end of the book, you, you have a few words about Madison, who is the only one of the founders who doesn't become disillusioned, who keeps his faith in the Republican idea and the Republican experiment. Say a few words about Madison. So Madison is in some ways a surprise. So he always had more moderate expectations from politics than the other founders do. I don't think people 
generally think of Madison as a you know unalloyed optimist, um, and yet he's the one who really. Um, through everything, keeps his faith, and he lives much longer than the others do, he, despite being a rather sickly hypochondriac. He lives to 1836. He lives almost to, to the end of Andrew Jackson's second term. So he sees a great deal. And there are moments where he's a little bit depressed during the nullification crisis, you know, some questions are raised. But really, at the end, he's almost defiantly optimistic about the the Constitution and the Union and the American experiment more generally. Um, And it's really, it frankly came as something of a surprise to me. I'll be honest, when I set out to write this book, I thought I was going to be writing a book about these five disillusioned founders. Um, I I knew enough about Madison's um, involvement with the the nullification crisis that I thought, well, okay, he's going to be disillusioned too. But then as I spent more time with the, the documents, with the letters and other writings from this period, it just wasn't there. He, he was, as I say, defiantly optimistic. So I had to flip that part of the book and say, well, why was he confident when, when the others weren't? And I have a chapter where I, I speculate about this, and it has to be a matter of speculation. Um, but I do think that there are a number of um, explanations for why Madison might have been the, the odd man out, the exception that proves the rule. Um, partly a matter of temperament, where he's, he's not as, as much of an innate optimistic as, uh, sorry, as much of an innate optimist as Jefferson was. But he's very even-tempered. He's almost maddeningly even-tempered um, throughout life, even when he's president and the capital, Washington, D.C., is being put to the torch by British troops. He just, nothing really ruffles him. And so um, I, I think that his unflappable disposition probably contributes to his, his lack of despair. I think it's also the fact, I, I said at the very outset, that Madison had lower expectations from politics than the other founders did, which is to say he never expected, like Washington, that people would always um, surmount party and, and see things in a disinterested light. He never expected, like Adams, that people would always put their selfish interests aside and, and you know promote the common good. He never hoped, like Hamilton did, that the country would be this um, grand player on the world stage who, who, who you know, uh, an economic and military powerhouse that would compete with the European imperial powers on their own terms. Nor for all of his similarities and in, in, in friendship with Jefferson did he really long for yeoman farmers to conduct the politics of their local lord, uh, local ward rather, on, on this um, immediate level. He just expected the government to do less than they did, and so he was less disappointed in, in what it did by the end. The, the lower expectations made it, made it easier to be fulfilled. And the other thing is he also had lived long enough to have seen the Republic uh, weather a good many storms. That's right. So, it, it, right, he's the last of the fathers. He's lived so long. He, seems so, he, he has seen so much by the end. And he seems to think, well, look, the Constitution, the Union has survived the Alien and Sedition Acts. They survived the War of 1812, when, again, the Capitol went up in flames. It survived the Missouri crisis. If it can survive all that, maybe it can survive a good deal more. Uh, this is along the line of your own conclusion. I mean, you've lived longer than Madison, <laughs> and, and yet I, I, you have a hopeful end to this book where you say the threats of what we're threatened with now is, is uh, really not as serious as the threats that the 
republic has survived over the last 200 odd years. That's right. You know, especially in the, the midst of uh, harrowing times like the present, one always sounds more smarter and more you know intellectually serious if, if you take a pessimistic view. So, of course, I go in the opposite direction. Um, I do, I mean, the conclusion there is a bit of the, the typical academic on the one hand, but on the other. So, it's true that the founders' worries are still with us, right? Washington's worries about partisanship, Adams' worries about civic virtue, and so on. Most of these worries are still very much with us. There are lots of problems with American politics today, um, some springing from the previous president and, and his allies, some much more longstanding. But I do, you're right, at the end, I do take more of a Madisonian view. I, I think we might want to take a certain comfort in the fact that the founders voiced these worries too. And in fact, their, their worries were deeper than ours. They, they all, so many of them think, well, the union's going to break apart. We're going to have to new, call a new constitutional convention. Um, maybe we're going to lapse into a hereditary monarchy. Obviously, none of those things have happened, right? We, we've survived as a constitutional democracy for 230 odd years. Um, we've become the world's greatest economic and military power. And so maybe if Madison can find solace in the fact that the, the Constitution and the Union had lasted a half century, well, now it's lasted more than two centuries, right? So maybe that gives us a certain, um, certain hope. I, as one of your readers, that's the solace that I take from your book and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it and I hope this book gets a lot of attention and that a lot of people read it because it's a it's a, it's a wonderful perspective and thank you Dennis Rasmussen for talking to us today about your new and very fine book Fears of a Setting Sun The Disillusionment of America's Founders Thank you Lewis it was a pleasure Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. Music